welcome to the Dr. Frank Avila Show. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Frank Avila, board certified family physician and diplomate with the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I've been helping patients lose weight to treat and prevent medical problems for the last 10 years, and I'm taking what I've learned from them to you. In this podcast, you will learn the science behind why you struggle with your weight and what to do about it, tips for common challenges, work to fight bias about what a healthy weight really is, and improve your relationship with food and your body. Please remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. This podcast is meant to be informational in nature only, not medical advice. Please seek out care from your physician for your specific needs. Okay, let's get started. All right. Hello. Welcome back to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have a guest with us. We have Nina Crowley. She is a PhD and RD, that's a registered dietitian, health psychologist, and advocate. She holds her doctorate in health psychology from Walden University, an MS in healthcare policy and management from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and a BS in nutrition science from Cornell University. So she has hit like all of the things that we talk about (laughs) on this podcast. After leading the Medical University of South Carolina's metabolic and bariatric surgery program, she joined SECA's Medical Body Composition and Bioimpedance Analysis Division as a professional affiliations and education manager. And I have invited her on today to talk about tracking metrics besides just weight, the importance of building muscle, and how we can incorporate this into our weight loss journey. Nina, tell us a bit about how you got involved in this field and why you're interested in all this. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and have this conversation with you. I think we could probably talk all day about this and some other topics. I started as a dietitian. I landed in bariatric surgery. I absolutely loved counseling and went back to school to get my PhD in psychology to be a better, more effective dietitian. And so doing that, I then loved my bariatric program and became the leader of that for a few years. And after kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next and what I was attracted to, I was really interested in kind of educating folks on on anything. And so it kind of landed in body composition where I get to talk about something I'm completely and completely involved in. I love the ability to have something other than weight to talk to folks about. After being so embedded in bariatrics, I was just really kind of embedded in that insurance world for so long. So all gotcha. of this, I mean, like, just yes. like specific numbers, right? Like you need to yes. have this percentage of weight loss. Or you need to be like, this BMI qualifies you. This BMI is good. This is bad. Like all those sort of like numbers that, that we use yeah. a lot in medicine, but don't always have a lot of meaning to an individual person. Right. And really kind of thinking, I work a lot with the Obesity Action Coalition who advocates for patients access to care. And so really kind of thinking about how to get people access to better care, better metrics. And so that kind of all aligns. And so Sika is is a good place for me. I get sort of in all of these fields. And it's been really nice over the past two years, seeing all of the changes in the healthcare field around obesity care and medications that are more highly effective and outcomes that matter to patients. So there's so much going on right now. Sometimes I get dizzy because I've done this for like 10 years. I don't know how long you've been in the field, but a long time as well. And it felt like it was like kind of under the radar. Like people didn't really know what we did. And now 
I mention what I do to a stranger and they're like, oh, you mean like a Zempic? Everyone knows that we have interventions that help with weight and people are starting to wrap their idea around weight being medical as opposed to just like a personal choice or something. So it's just crazy, the world right now, like how much attention this is all getting. And, and, and it's there's someone, sword too. You know? What'd you say? It's a double-edged sword too, right? Like we wanted attention on the disease state for so long. Now we have it. It's not always positive, but I think things like what you're doing, talking to people about what's what's the evidence, what's science out there and what, you know, how effective these treatment options can be is really important work. And I do think that we'll see a tipping point and maybe some of that media and insurance coverage get kind of on the more favorable side to the disease. Yeah, I think it's all moving towards progress, but yeah, it's a lot. And like you said, a double-edged sword, there's so much going on right now in the weight loss world. Okay. So you are in this body composition, bioimpedance space right now, career-wise. So let's talk about what that is, because I'm not sure everyone's familiar with that or may have seen it and don't really know what we're talking about. So when we talk about bioimpedance, what are we talking about? What the heck is that? Yeah. So I think first we talk about body composition, right? When we're saying, let's get away from weight alone. You measure your weight, your body's full on gravity, right? So that's not the only way that we want to measure how someone's doing. When we look at body composition, there's several ways to kind of estimate how someone's body's made up of muscle, fat, bone, water, and minerals. The most accurate way is through an autopsy, right? So we don't want to do that. <laughs> Let's not, I try not to kill my patients. Usually like my number one goal, actually. Yep. No autopsies. Okay. Outside of direct measurement, that way we do, there's different ways to estimate those body compartments, they're called. And so there's ways to measure the compartment of body fat, measuring the fat-free mass, which is everything else besides the fat. And then you'll hear other terms like lean body mass, lean soft tissue, skeletal muscle, body fat, water. There's these different components to the body. And so kind of putting that all together, there's a few different ways to do that. Some of them, they vary as far as how applicable that might be in your clinic setting, right? What's accessible to a patient? Do you have to go get an MRI? That would be the best way to measure your skeletal muscle. But most people aren't going to do that. Right. Um, yeah. so it takes a long time to lay in an MRI and they are not cheap, right? So we're not going to probably MRI to figure out what your muscle mass is. So bioimpedance is a technology that measures a low voltage electrical current going through your body. And it goes different speeds through fat and muscle and water. And so that is a, a way to estimate the composition of your body in those compartments. And they what they do is validate the technology with MRI with a four compartment model for fat mass. And or when you estimate the bioimpedance versus those other sort of gold standard measurements, you get an accuracy of about 97, 98%, which is definitely good enough to use the patients in a clinic setting. So you've got- Yeah, you know, so we're talking like very accurate, 97% accurate. And that's for the brand that you work with is right. 97%. And I have a different brand. I use the InBody in my office. I think they're like closer. The one I got, which was, it's getting old, it's 95%, but pretty accurate machines. And- easy to use on like a daily basis, right? As opposed to some of the like the hundred print, you know, the gold standard technologies, but you can't use them very often or they're expensive or difficult to get. So I think right now, bioimpedance is probably the easiest and most common way to measure like body fat versus muscle mass. And it's something that it's been around I think about 25 years or so, and it's gotten so much better. It used to be 
what they call single frequency. Now it's multiple frequency. So you're getting better and better at estimating the body compartments. And why that matters to the patient is that we are talking so much about obesity, adiposity, and to some level weight loss. And what we want to know really is how much and from where someone is losing weight. And so we don't kind of view it, as you said, all the same as weight loss. We want more to be coming from body fat or adipose tissue and less to be coming from your muscles, your bone, and all of that. And so this is a way for you to, you know, in a clinic, in an office, at a gym, you know, there's various places that you would see a bioimpedance machine or device. You would measure that. And then every, about every month or so, um, you wouldn't want to do it too frequently and see too many fluctuations from day to day. But if you're working with an obesity medicine provider, you're taking a treatment or you're working on your diet and your exercise, and you would want to be able to measure regularly at intervals to see how your body's changing. And so the goal being, as you're losing weight, you're seeing more, more fat loss, less muscle loss, and ability to keep that muscle once that sort of high intensity intervention is over. Yeah. So I first discovered this technology when I was in training and I got to, I was actually someone in the bariatric program and they let me like try out the in-body in my case. And I like just had this baseline and the baseline, I don't feel like means all that much. I use it to look at change, right? But it's just kind of cool technology. Like I had no idea what my body fat was, you know, who really gets that measured. So I thought it was kind of interesting. And then shortly after I got my in-body, I started doing CrossFit. It was really the first time in my life I'd done Olympic lifting, heavyweight lifting. And I gained, I think, like at least five pounds, which I'm a woman in America. I'm like, what the heck? And I knew I had gained muscle. I mean, I was doing CrossFit. You look in the mirror, you're like, I have these big arms. Everything is looking different. But still, for me, wrapping my head around that five-pound weight gain was like a little challenging, right? Like I was like, you get tied to these numbers sometimes, which can be completely meaningless, right? So they don't tell you about muscle versus fat versus water weight in some cases. So then I was at one of our OMA conferences, and I tried out some of the different machines, and I got on an in-body again. And I was able to compare like six months of CrossFit. And it turns out I'd actually gained like seven pounds of muscle and lost two pounds of fat. And so for me, that was like such an eye-opening experience to look at the scale differently, or maybe not really even look at the scale a whole or not put a different value in the scale, because I realized it really doesn't tell me what's going on, right? It's not a completely useless number. And episode 27 of the podcast, I talk about making peace with the scale because it can guide us, right? But it doesn't tell us the whole story. A weight can be mean different things. 150 pounds can be different things depending on how much muscle mass you have and how much fat mass you have and what's going on with your water weight, which for some people does factor in. So that was like my personal experience. And so I have utilized that technology for my patients who also enjoy seeing that more detailed information, because I think it just, it gives you more information to know muscle versus fat. Right. And I think as you're talking about long-term obesity, chronic relapsing disease over the long-term, right? You're going to be working with patients on this for a long time. And so weight loss goals, I think are quite temporary. And once you get there, it's hard to continue to say, my goal is to stay the same. That's just, I don't think mentally very exciting. And so with fitness and with resistance training as athletes, there's always fitness goals that can be reached. There's always things you can work on. And for me in particular, seeing the same as you, seeing muscle change, it's really changed my focus on, wow, I mean, I really need to be focusing on as I age, 
like the majority of our patients being women, right? They really need to focus on preserving that muscle mass so that they can remain healthy into the aging process. And I think that's such a more holistic, comprehensive, kind of full full view of a person that you don't get with weight. And not to really get into all those nuances too of how kind of complicated and maybe detrimental it can be when you're just focusing on weight loss. And we talk about obesity treatment as really this whole person as something that's not just about weight loss. And so it is disappointing when folks are only using weight as a measure of how they're doing. And so I do feel like we're seeing a tipping point and a trend almost of moving towards, let's look at these better outcomes. Let's look at how your health conditions are affected and where your body is another component. So looking at visceral adipose tissue, I think that's another really exciting component of of our bioimpedance device where you're measuring someone's waist circumference and along with the bioimpedance measurements that were validated with MRI, visceral adipose tissue can be estimated. And that is a much closer aligned metric to your health, your heart and metabolic outcomes. Right. And I talked a little bit about visceral adiposity in the last episode, but in case people aren't familiar with what that is, what it, what are we talking about when we say visceral adiposity? Yeah, sorry. That's a, it's a big term. So what it really means is your body fat sort of not all created equal and it's different in different parts of the body. So the part that you would say maybe pinch if you were using a skinfold counter or or an inappropriate relative, I don't know, that would be your subcutaneous fat. And that's less related to your actual health outcomes than the fat that's packed in around your organs and around your abdominal cavity. That's really where it's most harmful to have extra adipose tissue or fat. And that can be measured or or estimated as visceral adipose tissue. So when we're looking at at weight loss, we're hoping to see a change in the waist circumference, a change in the visceral adipose tissue, along with sort of some of these other body composition changes. But that's a measure I think it's really exciting for patients to see. Because that's for health reasons, that's the weight we care about, right? Is that visceral fat around our organs, that fat under abdominal muscles, right? So not the stuff we can squeeze. And I use like pretty much the same terminology as you. It's like the stuff you can squeeze is not really like the health problem stuff, right? It's the stuff deeper that you can't really see. It might make your stomach stick out more, but it's the stuff we can't really see that's affecting our health. Right. And that's something that I think people really can see change through an intervention and much more aligned with the big picture reasons, right? If you ask someone, you know, why I'm sure you hear this daily, why your patients are wanting to lose weight, they're really most connected to functional outcomes of, I want to be able to do these things. I want to live longer. I want to be able to get on the floor with my grandkids and really being able to connect outcomes to some of these would be more psychosocial or behavioral outcomes is important. And I think that's another way we can do that with preserving muscle mass, being able to move your body for longer at a better level and really reducing the risk of the, of the other health conditions or to me, part of the, part of the deal, why that makes this so important. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of like how we use this in the clinic, whether it's bariatric and metabolic surgery, which is some of your background or a really intense nutritional invention or medication or some combination of all those, a lot of times our patients do have really large weight losses on the scale. And we want to make sure that they're kind of losing the right weight and that they're not losing too much muscle. We generally, tell me what you say. I usually say it's acceptable to lose up to 20% of your weight as muscle. But in an ideal world, we like 
keep as much muscle as possible, right? I don't know. Do you have a cutoff that you tend to recommend? I've seen, obviously, I think the goal is zero, right? If that were possible. But what I've seen kind of in the literature is somewhere between about 20 and 30%, depending yeah. on how fast that is. Like you said, with bariatric surgery, it's kind of accepted and known that there's going to be this rapid weight loss period and then a period of preserving. And I think the most key component of that is seeing data or research about the more lean muscle that you can keep during that weight loss phase, it's actually related to keeping that weight off long-term. So if mm. someone loses, that, I don't know, 50% of the weight that they lost as the lean metabolically active tissue that keeps your metabolism up, it's going to be much more likely that they're going to struggle longer term and maybe put weight back on. So it's almost... I must also look at it as a preventive measure for yeah, keeping. Yeah, so keeping the muscle mass is really one of the things that can help you maintain the weight you've lost. And it keeps your the more complicated version of a conversation about resting metabolic rate, right? The higher you can keep that up, I always the, the biggest loser studies, right? Where yeah. people lost so much weight, they lost their metabolic rate went so low that they really could only survive on a real low number of calories long term. So part of the other reason to keep muscle on you during weight loss is so that when you're getting to that maintenance phase, you're able to consume a number of calories, really, that's something that you can actually feasibly do long term. Yeah, so keeping that metabolic rate by keeping that muscle mass. And then I don't think it gets talked about enough, but that muscle mass has lots of health benefits, especially for women. Bone health is one of the big ones preventing fractures as we get older. But we're really just starting to see more and more improved outcomes health-wise in general based on preserving our muscle mass. And so definitely factor. And then how much is acceptable to lose probably is based a little bit on where you start, right? Because sometimes I will have people who come into my clinic and they their muscle mass is like off the chart, right? And so if they lose a little, like they have a ton to begin with. And so that may be less of a big deal. But then I have some people who, even though they have extra adipose or fat tissue on them, their muscle mass is on the low side. And so those are the patients I really push to be like, Ooh, I don't want you to lose any muscle. We need to really actively try to build muscle for you while you're losing fat because you don't have any muscle to lose. Totally. And that's something you can't see exactly or assess just from visual. So yeah, I mean, the other piece of this is when someone has excess weight on them, it it builds muscle to carry around excess adipose tissue and muscle and all of that. You may see a lot of our patients who have excess weight with high muscle and high fat. And but there also are patients they call it sarcopenic obesity yeah. where the muscle mass is low and really at a cut point that is scary or related to malnutrition or something like that. So even though they look heavier, bigger bodied, and like they're carrying excess adipose tissue, they really are not having enough muscle mass. And that has a whole host of other negative health conditions. Most recently, I kind of dove into that looking at dementia and obesity and mm. sarcopenia and all of them. Yeah, I think we're probably at the beginning almost of seeing more data on this. But I do think it's monitoring it, like you said, looking at someone at the beginning of an intervention. So you can say, these are the parameters. And if we see this going so low that it's getting into a place where you're having falls or your frailty or any of those kind of things come up, that's a problem. And that is where you would want to intervene sooner, not wait till six to 12 months go by if you're seeing them more frequently. And with medications too, I think I haven't seen a, a real standard of 
like you said, 20%, 30%. But, you know, there's been some discussion about some of the studies in the medication world of what's an acceptable number. And, and really, it kind of to me comes back to from a nutrition and exercise perspective of most all of our patients need to work on strength and resistance training more than they are and preserving muscle through through a diet and including a higher protein intake than they may be doing. So, you know, not that sometimes that advice can come off as, well, eat less, exercise more, right? Eat more protein and right. do... But it's giving a little more specific advice of, okay, like our first thing is always just move more. I always encourage everyone just move more. Like that's what the data says. But then once we're doing that at least twice a week, doing some dedicated strength training where whether that's yoga or Pilates or something that's lower intensity or whether that's hitting CrossFit or doing some power lifting, squats, lunges, you know, something where you're getting that pull on the muscles and making them grow, right? Like we have to stimulate our muscles to grow. And the way we do that is essentially by making them work. Yeah. And getting to a place too, I think with exercise where I think it's easier to make the connection with why resistance training is important when you're seeing like what would happen to your muscle mass over time and getting to that mindset of I'm doing this to preserve my muscle versus I'm just doing exercise to get a little bit of extra weight loss. I think, but also yeah, be careful too, if you're doing it because you could gain weight and that's why you don't want to be too obsessed with the scale, right? Because if you start doing strength training, you might, the scale may go up and it doesn't mean you've gained fat. It just, it means you're gaining muscle, which for a lot of people is what we want them to do. So it's almost like having a neutral assessment on what those numbers are doing and focusing more on what you can control and what your goals are. That's in line with most, most folks. So as we have these more powerful tools, I think one of the ways that I like having this technology in my clinic is, again, making sure people aren't losing too much muscle. I had a patient recently, and we've been doing a lot of telehealth, so I hadn't seen her in person. And she came in person, and she was at like a normal BMI. She'd had a 30% weight loss. It was actually on Fentermine. It wasn't on one of our newer medications. It was on Fentermine. She was really doing the nutrition stuff, and she was exercising quite a bit, but it was mostly cardio And so I was like, well, let's see what the in-body says. And it was fascinating because she actually had not lost any muscle. Like she had lost pure fat for that 30%. And so that was like super encouraging because she, again, she was eating protein with every meal, which is what I recommend to maintain that, that lean mass, that muscle mass. Um, And she was exercising. She was doing a lot of cardio, but some of it had a little of resistance involved and I think that tool was helpful because I was going to push her to do a little bit more formal strength training. But I think when I saw that data, I was like, great, let's not mess with success, right? The workouts you're doing are getting enough of that muscle stimulus that you're keeping your muscle mass. Um, So it was really reassuring to have someone have had that much weight loss, but their, I, I mean, their scan looked great, right? So I was like, okay, carry on. Yeah. I mean, and that really gets to this individualized care that you do, right? And that you would not have been able to make those same assessments or recommendations if you just had her weight or BMI. Right, right. Yeah. And again, just if I was guessing, I would have been like, oh, you really need to start work. That was my instinct. And then when I looked at the data, I was like, nope, your muscle mass is great. Carry on. Because that's why we have all sorts of different tests in medicine, right? Is to try to be objective about it and have some data as opposed to just guessing what we should do for ourselves or our patients. Looking at okay. like an, ex- an experiment too, almost, right? Like you're their partner and trying something new rather than just having it be top-down advice. This is, hey, let's experiment. You don't think you like resistance training, right? But maybe try something for six, eight weeks and see what you can do or you know, however long that takes to really 
see some change there, but you know, then see and see how they feel and look at those numbers as another part of that comprehensive assessment. I love that so much. And that's so much of my approach with what I do with what I call weight care, where it's individualized, right? Like my patients eat all sorts of different foods, but we really see what they respond to and what makes sense for their life. Because if I gave them a specific diet or the way I like to eat, that's not going to work for everyone, right? We have to see what works for the individual person. And that's true for exercise too. Some people put on muscles super easily. My husband is that person. He like lifts weights two times and he has like biceps. I'm like, what just happened, right? I mean, I would have to do three hours of like bodybuilding a day to have the same result. People's bodies respond really different, right? Some people just naturally have more muscle mass than others too. And some people respond again to that strength training. And then some people running in tennis, like they can build muscle from that too. It's nice. I think that's all part of this sort of checking in where you're at and not comparing to other people. And it's easier to do that when you're like, here's these 10 things to look at versus when you're just looking at that one number. It's a much more consistent message of what you're actually doing in your counseling. So we have been talking about the the scales, the Dubai impedance that we use clinically that are quite pricey and big investments for clinics who use them, but often really are helpful for patients. But there is a lot of these scales that you can get at Amazon or Target that are like 40 or 60 bucks that will also give you some of these numbers. What do you think about those? Are any of those like very helpful? Are they accurate? Should they be used? I've got a lot of thoughts on that, but kind of the big categories of them, one would really be that we, so first of all, those devices are not going to give you the range of parameters, right? So they might tell you your body fat percentage or muscle mass. There's not going to be that full range of maybe 19 or 20 different outputs. So I think they can be used together with an in-clinic or, you know, in one of the more uh, medical grade devices. I also think we've got to be a little bit careful with daily bioimpedance readings at home because that's what, if we go back to what the purpose of that is, it's to show you a change in your body composition over time with a trend. So you're working on changing your diet, you're working on exercise, you're maybe taking medication or surgery, whatever that intervention is. We want to measure how that's affecting the body composition, but we don't want people to get in that pathway where they're trailing or tracing, just like people do with weight. Oh, this is up two pounds. Well, what was it? Was it water? Was it this? I ate this. And that can be almost the same proxy for weight. Right. Which You need to look at like the bigger picture, like the trends and and just like with the scale, right? You're not going to see a body fat change overnight. You do. It's going to make you be like curious or defend it and say, this thing isn't accurate. And they're not intended to really show you the day-to-day because you will have fluctuation. And so I just, my concern is that when someone's at home and not in the office with a healthcare provider giving them that feedback is that you can get in your head about it and really it can go against what the whole purpose of it is, is to make... And the majority of them are not as accurate. Oh my gosh, I'm like losing my statistics terms here, but that's right, right? They're not as accurate. They're not as true to what's going on. Though some of them may be precise, meaning if it says you've had a 3% body fat loss, that change that it's measuring in the home devices may be true, but the actual numbers are not going to probably be as accurate or 
close to reality as the ones we use in a clinical setting, right? I know I have a home one that I got and it's like nowhere close to the information that that my clinical one gives me. You're not doing those. So they're not necessarily doing those validation studies with those gold standard measures. And I'm not aware if they are, but you know, that's one reason that you're not seeing that. It's not 97% accurate with MRI or core compartment model. But, you know, again, it's a piece of data. I think it can be part of the puzzle. If it keeps someone motivated to continue to be doing those daily behavior things, if you can connect it that way, I think there can be a role. I do think it's important to stay in touch with the healthcare provider and and get a, you know, maybe every three months or something, a reading from the device in the clinic. And then just making sure, like we said, that it's not becoming something that you get obsessed with or that you're, you're changing your fluid intake every day because this number is off. I think those can be the part right, of it. Right, don't micromanage it. And again, those home ones, like they're probably true if they're telling you there's a change, but if it says it's 25% or 30% body fat, that may not be completely accurate, but the difference that you'll see from day to day, probably that difference is true. So if it's trending the way you want it to, that is likely to be true on the device. Yeah, and you also have to think too, you know, part of what makes bioimpedance a a good estimate of those body composition compartments is that you need the electrical current to go through your hands, your feet to your hands. So you've got to have those electrodes where you have the grip and then they're put electrodes. So those eight points of contact when you're doing it that way. So for the devices that you're just standing on, that's really measuring the bioimpedance in the bottom half of you, which is not necessarily a great estimate of the full body. If people can take it for what it is, which you know is hard to assume that everybody knows how to put that kind of data in the big picture, I think there can be a place. And I think with time, we'll get maybe more accurate measures of that at home. But I, you yeah. know, just like with lots of other virtual care, I don't think it's a full replacement for just like your Apple Watch isn't going to be the only advice you take you want to connect with your healthcare provider, but it's a good way to check in. That's a great comparison, right? I have all these devices that track my oxygen and my heart rate, but I'm certainly not going to make like a diagnosis based on that, but it can be reassuring if my watch says my oxygen is good at night. And same thing if my patients are telling me their watch or their ring or something is telling them they have a low oxygen at night, I'm going to investigate that with a more formal test. So I think that's a great point for all of those things. Okay, so we kind of started off talking about how one of the challenges and frustrations for clinicians and patients is like sometimes these numbers that the healthcare system artificially puts on things. But we ended up kind of talking about some numbers in terms of different numbers to look at, which is like visceral, that weight on your belly or in your belly almost versus like muscle mass and these other things, but some kind of like numbers. In terms of other metrics that you recommend patients look at, What other things besides the scale, whether it's bioimpedance or traditional scale, what other metrics do you recommend people kind of pay attention to? Oh, you're thinking like like dietary things? Or or just not like the non-scale victories, right? Like what are other ways that we can encourage people to monitor how they're doing as they work to improve their health? And weight may be part of that, but what are other ways we can direct people if maybe they're not seeing progress on the scale or if the scale is a stressful place for them? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the fitness goals are things that you can see improvement in all the time and with no endpoint, no sort of plateau necessarily. That would be something that everybody should be thinking about. 
a lot of the functional health things. So things I was, like I said, used to ask people what could they not do before surgery that they looked forward to being able to do and checking in with those types of things. Because I think we get real inward focused and hard on ourselves sometimes, like I'm not meeting this or that goal. But when most people set out to lose a significant amount of weight, they're looking to feel better, have more energy, be able to do things that they couldn't do before. But then once you're in the game and you're losing weight and kind of looking at numbers, you're like, you forget, okay, my goal was to feel better. Well, do you? And how do you check into that? My goal was to be able to get on the floor with my grandkids and play and be not hurting afterwards. And are you able to do that? So, you know, those may be a little bit not as objective as some people like to think, but those are important long-term things to evaluate how you're doing. And you might not need as much weight loss as you think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times our data shows and what I see clinically is a five percent weight loss, people feel better and we see improvements in health, right? Your inflammation goes down really quickly when you lose weight. So your joints may feel better. You may have less asthma symptoms. Your energy may be better. Blood pressure sometimes goes down really quickly. So you get a lot of health improved from from that weight loss. And so sometimes it's just looking at those, but I love that, like looking at other things in your life, And we talked about at some point you stop losing weight, right? Whether that's at your goal weight or whether it's at a new healthy weight for you, the weight loss, you get into a maintenance place, but a lot of people like something to track. And so if they're not seeing a change on the scale, then that can be like a a lack of motivation, right? They liked getting that reinforcement of the scale changing. And so finding a new goal, whether that's, okay, I'm going to increase muscle mass. I don't care what the number of the scale is, but I want to see the muscle mass go up. Or some fitness goals, which I love. I actually don't think I've talked about that a whole ton on the podcast, but you know, how fast can you walk a mile? Can you run? How long can you run for? How many push-ups can you do, right? Whether that's on your knees or against a wall, it doesn't have to be a traditional push-up. How many sit-ups can you do, right? Can you touch your toes? I don't know, maybe like a new goal that you reach for that you can track in some way that gives you that motivation and also makes it more about health. But setting those up at the beginning too, because I think that's where we get into trouble. And even as healthcare providers, right, is patients will go, the healthcare provider will say, oh, your BMI is this, you qualify for that, let's get started on this. And then they only measure weight. And then at the end, when it's okay, now you're not losing weight, you're at a plateau, but let's start thinking about these other things. And I think it's important that you think about those up front and before starting an intervention and say, what are the things that I really, why am I doing this? Kind of thinking, maybe journaling. And I used to have patients write this letter of things you're going to, things you miss and things you don't miss about, in this case, significant weight loss after bariatric surgery. And all the stuff they miss were like a couple food things here and there, but all the don't miss were so rich and life things. And they really told you a lot about how that person was engaging and interacting in the world in a completely different way. And as a provider, those are the things that make you go home and tell your family, I love what I do. You know, it's not, I love that idea. Okay. I usually leave people with some homework and I like this letter idea of write a letter of the things, whether wherever you're at in your journey of, okay, the things maybe you feel like you're missing out on or that you've lost or that you've changed or that you've cut out. And then write to yourself like, but here are all the positives. Here's what I've gained. Like I gained self-confidence. I ran for a minute and I didn't think I'd ever be able to run again. I walked all day at Disney with my kids. I got off a medication, right? What are all the like 
positives and just, I like the idea of it being a letter kind of to yourself and something you can go back to. So I love that. That's beautiful. Okay. That's the homework today. Write yourself a letter of what, what maybe you feel like you've lost or given up, but what are the things that you have gained? I love that. You love it. It was your idea. Of course you love it. I love everyone to do it. (laughs) Okay. Well, yes, yes. Okay. You're like, I love it. All right. How can people connect with you after this? If they want to stay in touch or follow you on social, where's the best place to find you? Sure. So I love LinkedIn now because I'm able to really kind of process all these news articles and research articles that are coming out about obesity care. So that's probably the best way to kind of connect with me. Right. Nina's on LinkedIn. I'm going to put all her connections in the show notes. If you want to follow her or learn more, thank you so much for joining us. I think we had an awesome conversation about the importance of muscle mass, like not putting too much weight on the scale, no pun intended. And I love this idea of writing a letter. Like what have you lost, but really what have you gained? So thank you so much for joining us today. And until next week, take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Frank Avila Show, where we learn about all things related to weight and health. If you love this podcast, make sure to leave those five-star reviews and share this podcast with a friend or loved one. If you have a topic about weight and health you want me to tackle, head over to the website, thedrfrankavillashow.com to submit your question. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode. Take care.